the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week. Episode 98, recorded Wednesday, July 3rd, 2013. I thought it was a blender. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I'm your host. This is episode 98, which just means that we've done this 97 more times. Uh, with us this week, a returning brother uh, from far off in the West Coast, Mr. Rich Fergoza, FergozaDesign.com. How are you, sir? I'm doing very good. Hopefully bringing back some West Coast vibes to the show. Yay. So I guess is this the penultimate to the penultimate show uh, leading up to episode 100? Yes. So. <laughs> I have nothing for that one except for guests. <laughs> Actually, no. That one, I I, I, I joke. I, I try to get this this show booked about two weeks out, so that one is booked, and and I, it, it's it'll be the the board of directors, the board of advisors. Uh, so that'll be Mr. Tucker and and Ms. Uh, Ab Dawn and and Mr. Scott and uh, and uh, Mr. Drainer, if he can you know pull himself away from the real job. So um, he's a busy guy. He Sennheiser works him to death too much. So uh, they do. They do. Uh, also with this is a first timer. Um, not that we have haven't had somebody on from Pershing before, but Emily is new. Her name is Emily Hay, Vice President of Systems Engineering Services. How are you, ma'am? Good afternoon. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about huddle spaces, simply because I was tired of hearing the stupid phrase at Infocom this year. Uh, everybody, and I do mean everybody. I think the only people that didn't have a huddle space uh, was daylight, <laughs> but that's you know. <laughs> Um, and also talk about uh, the. They uh, do. It's called a mirror. Oh shush! No, was it? No, it was drape daylight that had the uh, the camera in the in the in the. I guess they do have a huddle space because they have a camera in there, in one of their drop down screens. So yeah, never mind. They do have a huddle space. Yeah, in the snazzy new. Like they're they're rebranded. Yes. Yeah. At least they didn't change their name. I was expecting that. Well, no, that's you know that would be um uh, that would be uh oh who was it uh the um. Oh, the the power people. Um, I can't even think. Oh, what they, are you talking about? Yeah, I, their their branding is so great. I've already forgotten them. Um, <laughs> actually, I gave them a hard. So they, they they came on the show. Um, Zantec and, and them. Um, ah. they uh they came on the show and I I said you know you guys have had kind of a a marketing issue. They <laughs> said yeah we have. Uh, anyhow, um, but yeah we're gonna give a give some advice to people. Uh, presenting at Infocom uh, from our buddy uh, John Huntington, who wrote a very interesting piece. And John's is an interesting guy, so you'll have to you have to take it with with a grain of salt, as it were. Uh, but first, we don't get much breaking news in the world of audio and visual, uh, but we have some. Came down about three hours ago, according to TechCrunch's website. Uh, streaming entertainment startup Boxy. I don't know if you'd call them a startup anymore. They've been around for a few years, but that's what TechCrunch is calling them, so we'll go with it. Uh, is acquired by, you ready for this, Samsung. <laughs> now, holy cow. 
Uh, if you don't know what Boxy is, Boxy is a it's a it's a, a, a streaming media uh, device. It is a it, it, it's the same as not the same, but, but kind of like a, a hop hog uh, box. It used to, it actually started out being just software, uh, kind of like Myth TV, uh, and you bought you you bought your own PC and you made your own uh, Boxy box, and now they've got some other they've got some hardware that they'll that they'll do as well. But it's an awful lot like an Apple TV, so it's a good thing we have our my favorite uh, my favorite Apple fanboy, uh, Mr. Fergosa. Is this reporting? I'm not even going to say a shot across the bow. This is like this is like aimed straight at the deck uh, of Apple. Samsung is just keeps keeps firing at them. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. I think that um, yeah, I was at CES this year, and Samsung was really pushing their smart apps um, for the new, the 2013 line of TVs. And I, I think it was a natural progression that they're pushing so far into it that it becomes, um, you know, just layering it right in. When it, as soon as I saw it, I went, yeah, this is, this is them saying we are now going to focus on whatever we didn't have. Um, we are now going to layer it in with, with these devices. And, and, you know, when I read the press release, it, it sounded more like they were buying the company, the uh, the mind share that comes along with everything uh, in the product, because it, it it's always been primarily a hobbyist type of piece, mm-hmm. uh, kind yeah. of for the do-it-yourselfer, um, who didn't want to be constrained inside the Apple ecosystem, and they wanted to be able to play their own home, big air quotes, um, videos that they have ripped to their <laughs> <laughs> their playback devices in order to play it back on their TVs and uh, and to be able to access their home media content um and then along the way they developed and branched out and you know they got agreements with netflix and hulu and you know like roku and apple tv and everybody else yeah. samsung's absolutely going after apple on this one they're saying yep you know it, we, we now have our own streaming box if you want to do the streaming box but more importantly we're going to go ahead and layer and fold this all into our smart tv apps um and i think that's where we're really if they decide to do well with this. Um, that that's what they'll wind up doing with with the unit and the technology. At least, hopefully. Uh, did the did the price surprise you at thirty million dollars? That seems a bit low uh, to me. I mean, I, I honestly think that they got them for steel, but that may just be you know my impression of boxy. You know, uh, up until their deal with uh, what was it Netgear? I think who makes their their outboard box? Um, I could be wrong. Is the Netgear Linksys? Um, oh, D-Link. Sorry, yeah. D-Link yeah. who makes their outboard box. Um, you know, they've they've always been software centric. I mean, there were instances where you know you could, if you wanted to, and if you were really industrious, you could find ways to get Boxy onto an Apple TV to play with it. Um, yeah. You know, for development purposes. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, I don't know necessarily what they're buying in terms of their revenue at that point. You know. And Boxy, other than, like I said, other than the hobbyist market and the do-it-yourself do it yourself type, even though they were selling in major retail locations, I don't know if their sales for that device ever really took off at, at that point. So it's, you know, was, I don't know if they even sold more than the Google TVs that were out there. Um, so this really was a software purchase for, for Samsung to kind of meld that in. And and again, I think they, they they were more focused on the technology than the hardware and the assets itself. Because really, the dealing thing was a licensing agreement. It wasn't, you know, this is a boxy branded box. It was this is a boxy box by D-Link. Yeah. So, right. uh, 
you know, I don't know if they're necessarily, obviously they're not acquiring those assets or anything, but it'll be interesting um, down the line. And so either one or two things will happen. It's kind of like what happened with Logitech and buying a couple of companies. They'll either do great with it or a year from now it'll mysteriously vanish off the face of the earth. Uh, Cisco did the same thing a couple of times, you know. So it, it, it's a double-edged sword sometimes when you're acquired by a big company. And, you know, in light of, what is it, um, Control 4, I think, was going for, what, a $60 million IPO they're talking yeah. about mm -hmm. at, at $30 million for buying the entire company. You know, they only had 45 employees. Um, you know, so what exactly were they buying at that point? So maybe for them it's a great deal. I, I hope the guys who own it, <laughs> you know, did well. I'm hoping that they, they, that they walk out with a, a good chunk of it. Yeah, I yeah. do too. Emily, is this, is they, like Rich said, this is their, the Samsung is, is pointing their guns directly at Apple with this? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I, I, it'll be interesting to see how it rolls out if they if they end up just buying the intellectual property and rebrand Boxy and Boxy kind of disappears and it's rolled into the smart TV. Um, but I, I do think it was a deal at, at 30 million, depending on what they do with it. I definitely think that Boxy struggled against, you know, the Apple TV and Roku. So I think it was a smart move. Hopefully it was a smart move on, on both parts. Yeah, I certainly hope so. That's one thing that Samsung has going for them is the fact that well, they have a TV and Apple and Apple still right. doesn't. So right, you it becomes an all-in-one solution. It's you know become so popular out there. Yeah, absolutely. And they could you know they roll that into you know um, oh the the integrate the the Crestron app that they have now and hey cool. Mm -hmm. so, well, um, well, and it could be that they are, they're just buying the streaming services that Boxy was doing. Yeah, that's right. true too. Because right. that's that's one thing that Apple TV we don't have yet. With our, I'm sorry, the DVR, uh, the DVR purposes. With it. Well, and so. the, other, the other thing this, and you compare all of these different these different cord cutting devices, right? Um, with the none of them has like the the ultimate everything, right? I mean, Roku, mm -hmm. you've got oh my goodness, a, a a boatload of channels, but unless you are industrious, you, you're, there's not a real easy way to to connect your home either NAS or, or some other you know. Um, you know file sharing um, um, uh, media, um, Apple TV has a limited number of channels, but you can, you know, as long as you stay in the Apple ecosystem, you've got, you know, everything you've ever purchased from there. And that's the one thing that about Boxy that I was kind of um, interested in, similar to the, to the Myth, Myth TV, uh, which if you're not familiar with that, that is also just software-based. And that is another DIY, you know, do-it-yourselfer. Um, it, it, it was a little easier to, to bring in the... the um, the external files uh, from from a, a, a network storage device. So it'd be interesting if they keep that. Uh, let's stay in the world of, of displays because uh, Qualcomm is dumping 120 million dollars. I shouldn't say dumping; they're investing 120 million dollars in Sharp. Uh, here's the other thing that makes this interesting: is uh, a couple months ago, Samsung actually became uh, one of the biggest, actually the biggest non bank institute uh, investor and so now qualcomm uh, is the third largest investor in in sharp <sighs> emily i'm going to ask you this and, and what is it that these guys see or is it the fact that that they need sharp to succeed otherwise they're in trouble um what what is it that they see in sharp that both samsung and qualcomm and other investors are, are willing to put up this kind of money yeah, I, I think that's exactly what they're, they're investing in Sharp because they need Sharp not only just from a name brand recognition, um, but and also to further their their display technology that they've developed the Mem Display products. So I think that they're investing in probably 
you know, writing the sales of Sharp is, is how I view it um, and saying, well, we're going to become your largest investor and, and use the, you know, market share that Sharp has in order to further their own display technology. Uh, Rich, is this, like Emily said, and I, I kind of alluded to, is this where they need Sharp, not only from the technology standpoint, because they're the ones primarily who are making the glass and making the TVs anymore, uh, but also needs them need them to uh, to you know further their, the uh, the the um, technology that these guys have have developed. Uh, yeah, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is is going to be uh, mobile. I mean, this this is this is a move for mobile. Um, you know, I think that the first thing when we look at this and we look at displays, we keep thinking of large format displays, you know, anything from 22 inches on up. I see it completely different. I see this being a, a push into the fact that mobile is continuing to explode. It's not going to go and there is going to be that mid-range size where they can sell a whole ton of them um, at this point. And also keep in mind that, you know, Samsung and, and Apple are having a falling, falling out. Well, Apple has to go to somebody to still keep getting displays. <laughs> Samsung owns uh, a continuing portion of Sharp <laughs> and potentially any of those contracts, they still get to thumb their nose at Apple. Yeah, that would, yeah, that would be very interesting, especially, you know, if they can say, you know what, let's let's increase the price just a little bit more. All right. Uh, one more quick uh, purchase slash, you know, business story. Uh, Alan Heath was recently uh, acquired by a firm called Electra Partners. And... <laughs> What's interesting about this is not the fact that they were purchased. It was, you know, it's 43 million pounds. And I'm a big, dumb American, and I have no idea how much that is. But I'm assuming it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, probably $100 million by now. Um, because of their, you know, exchange rates and the fact that the dollar is low. But um, I should probably Google How many it. quids is that? Oh, fine. Or shillings. <laughs> how many shillings? Right. <laughs> I recently finished uh, David Copperfield, and now you know all these half pennies are in my head. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, Electra is as much as that sounds technology. You know, it's not. It's, yeah, not at all. No, they've, <laughs> they've got like insurance companies, food casings. I'm just going animal down. identification. I saw. Yeah, you no, know, it's strange. Credit cards, bicycles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You go to their website, and Alan and Heath is just kind of sandwiched in between all these, you know, fine arts materials and you know, park operators and property management. And then there's Alan and Heath. Cheese manufacturing. Mm -hmm. That was fun. You, you got to wonder whose brother-in-law this is. Oh, yeah, right? come on. <laughs> really? You think maybe? No. Anyhow. So, yeah, the question is really how much, how big of a deal will this be when it comes to the the daily, you know, nuts and bolts of running Allen Heath because I have a lot of respect for Allen Heath. I have a lot of respect for their for their mixers, uh, so much so that I'm using one right now. <laughs> That's what we use to, to record the show with. Um, Emily, is it, is it you know how how big of an impact will that have have on a daily basis when a company like Electra, uh, which is really I mean it, it's a it's an investment firm, right? I, I think, uh, you know, from just reading the article and reading the, the quotes that they even talked about, they're looking forward to working together. I really think it's just a financial investment. I mean, I don't think it will, it doesn't seem like it will change the day-to-day -day operations of Allen and Heath or direct their, you know, future product. Um, it seems like it's really just a financial acquisition to me, but that's that's just by reading their, you know, we can't wait to work with each other quotes in, in the article and, and then going to look at Electra's website and seeing that they have nothing to do with, you know, professional audio systems. So... Something like they make chips or anything. <laughs> or, yeah, right. Know, 
headphones or something. Not even technology related. Yeah. So. Uh, Rich, is this going to be, you know, not much ado about nothing? It kind of like, you know, um, I don't really even have a good analogy for this. Uh, you know, a couple years ago, Behringer bought Midas and everybody and their brother, you know, threw their hands up and said, oh, my goodness, the, the sky is falling. The world's coming to an end. But this isn't even, isn't even that. It's just these guys who want to make money and saw a good opportunity, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Alan and Heath was, was uh, part of DNM already. They were part of that portfolio to begin yeah. with. And nobody really freaked out over it when that happened. Mm-hmm. And it's very possible that somebody from DNM went over to, uh, you know, Electro and went, hey, you, know, you want to buy a mixing company? I'm like, <laughs> oh, how much? You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's kind they of what They first had to explain like what to a mixing me. company was. <laughs> yeah, because maybe they thought mixers, you know, you yeah, actually right. hand mixers. Yeah, it was the biggest mistake in their investment oh, in history. Exactly. We thought we bought a blender. Oh, <laughs> you told me this made margaritas. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my. In other words, right, exactly. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Allen and Heath margarita master comes out next. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we were talking about it earlier. Is that this is what we really feel the industry is going to is that they're all starting to consolidate. They're the mom and pop uh, manufacturers slowly fading away, and they're now being held by holding companies or companies who are professional business managers, for you know, lack of a better term. And they're just treating it as you know, either it, it's a commodity, either it makes money or it doesn't make money, and. As the market moves towards that, I think the manufacturers and the investment strategies are, are doing it. And I think that established manufacturers are also looking to get, get in while they're getting good at the same time. Well, you mentioned it earlier, uh, the fact that the Control 4 is going for an IPO. Then um, they're hoping to wait, raise $60 million, was it? Yeah. Yeah. That, to me, seems, I mean, I, I, again, I, I'm not a business you know, guy by any stretch of the imagination. But you look at the market and you go, okay, you know, they're going for an IPO. And then you've got guys like uh, George Feldstein at, at Crestron who has said, you know, he, he doesn't, you know, his, his, uh, his um, strategy for when he retires is that everybody will just keep doing what they're doing. And then you've got guys like AMX, which is a part of, of a, an actual corporation. And so you have all these different, you know, strat- or strategies, I guess, all these different makeups. Um, and there's not really a correct or, or incorrect answer. Um, it seems that, that it just kind of works, with, depending on the culture of the company, it just kind of works for everybody. So. Yeah, I mean, look at core brands, you know, who's you know, snapping everybody up every time you turn around. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, I think in the commercial world, just because it's been around longer in the sense of it being an established um, market, um, it's less of a surprise, but we're seeing that Resi is starting to do the same thing now where there's consolidation and, and really, um, the companies, although they're branded differently, are really all going into the same pot. Um, and, uh, you know, with, 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 with these guys, it's, it's, uh, you know, exactly. You know, I mean, AMX, when they switched, everyone was wondering what was going to happen with them. They honestly really didn't skip a beat. Um, and I think it depends on the company who purchases them, yeah. whether they're going to get yeah. in. And, and decide that they're going to manage it or, you know, they're hands off. And they basically it's just another asset that they manage and they basically tell the guys, hey, just don't screw this up. Um, <laughs> you know, that's what it sounds like this purchase might be. 
you know, here you go. Yeah, we bought you from these other guys. It's, it's <laughs> you know, it's, it's July, so it's like the baseball trading season. So maybe these guys got caught up in the, got caught up in the same <laughs> excitement, you yeah. know, <laughs> with a manufacturer to be named later. Um, yeah, I think it's a big tell. If the manufacturer is, is already doing well and, you know, operating well, you know, such as Alan and Heath, I have a lot of respect for them as well. And they're bought and then continue that model versus being bought and either rebranded or change the management structure that it, you know, it hurts the company. I mean, I think we've seen successful acquisitions and we've seen non-successful acquisitions. Um, so I, I'm hoping that this will be a successful one for Allen and Heath, um, given that they have such a respect in the industry and it will just be a financial, you know, acquisition. Yeah, I hope so too, because that's, you know, like I said, I, I, that's what we use here. So it's, it's, it's a good brand. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a couple more. Uh, I'm not going to call them leftover stories from Infocom, but they're interesting, and, and it was it, it was it it bears uh, mentioning. The first one is is from our buddy uh, John Huntington at ControlGeek.net, and I'm just going to kind of get your guys's take. Rich, I know you did not go to Infocom. Emily, did you did you happen to make it to Orlando this year? Yeah, I was there this year. Okay, so we'll we'll we'll, we'll kick it off with Rich because he was since he wasn't there, he is going to Cedia. And uh, he he'll have a a uh, a Cedia code for you at the end because he's in another Cedia tweet. Uh, but John writes basically here here is if you're an exhibitor, this is how John would like you to treat him. <laughs> and it's it's a it's a nice list. Some of them is the fact that you know there there are certain types of people that I don't want to see, according to John. Uh, you know the the used car salesman, the the scanner, uh, the booth uh, females, as it were. Um, the, uh, the revolutionaries, everything's a game changer, um, as a couple of different bloggers wrote, uh, go, going into Infocom. Uh, so Rich, what's one or two things that, that you want to see, or you don't want to see when it comes to either Infocom or Cedia or, or whatever other show you go to, NAB? Kegerators. Who is it? <laughs> Kegerators. It's like, yeah, I, 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 I apply the no beer, no show rule. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, the trade show is, it's, it's one, I, I think for manufacturers and for attendees, um, it's a double-edged sword. It's, you know, we, we go out, it, manufacturers know that they have, they, they feel that they have to do it in order to be able to reach out to their existing dealers, um, and hopefully attract new ones. And, and it's changed, I guess, in, in prior generations it felt like we attended trade shows to actually book business you know Mm -hmm. you'd go in you'd meet you know and you were basically looking to book whatever your existing business was or new business coming in and and it was a working show and somewhere along the line it feels like it's moved on from that now to yeah here we go again we have to show up yeah we're supposed to show new products so here's what we pushed through and by the way yeah coming soon um I, I think it was Don. Don mentioned it a, a couple of shows ago. I think on on the on the on the special was you know what would be great and I would really love for trade shows is if there was a only show products that you're planning on shipping soon. Yeah. Um, if you have a back room, you know, and you want to give dealers or your trusted partners a sneak peek um, and say here's some of the things that we're working on, great. Um, but make it more of a functional show. You know, here's what we have. Here's what we do. Here's how we can help you now and your products. Um, 
and then take that separate tack, which is and, and down the line, which is you know behind the velvet rope if you want to do it. Um, but but I think that's for me that's the that's the hardest part sometimes is gauging what to get excited about and what to know is going to be vaporware without having to worry about it being vaporware and I painted myself in a corner. Yeah, by yeah. by designing based off of it. Right. Yeah, and and you know it's it's rough for them. I mean, you got to remember that you know the manufacturers, whoever, how much of their staff that they bring out. I mean, that's that that takes a lot out of their process. Um, I think sometimes they're not they're, they're just as unhappy to see us as we're unhappy to see them. Oh, they love us. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like we we we've got a captive audience and we've got X number of vendors that we have to go to. Let's say there's you know 300, 400 vendors. And what was uh, what, what was Infocom this year? It was like it was kissing thirty five thousand. No, it went over thirty five thousand. It was, it was over thirty five thousand. The biggest one ever. Yeah. Now, imagine that over the course of it was what the three day period on the mm -hmm. show floor, your manufacturer, even on the low point, is seeing at least a thousand, maybe or to a couple of thousand people each day. It's a lot of people to have to get through, and, and you have to kind of go through the process because there's, you can only do so much personal talking. The math just doesn't work. You yeah. know, if you're a small booth and you got 3,000 people coming in, it's a much different if you're a three-person booth as opposed to a 300-person booth. And so, you know, it's, it's just the numbers at that point where they do have to, you know, take the card. Here's what we do. Here's the can presentation of the dog and pony. Because sometimes when they're talking to you, they're planning on it being overheard by about 15 people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I think it's a balance too between. Um, I mean, you have to assume there's the 20 year veterans that have been to trade shows year in and year out, and are and are so used to the dog and pony. And then there's the new visitors who that may be their first time at Infocom, or you know CES or or whatever trade show it is. So I I think some of the dog and pony is meant for the new users to kind of grab their attention. And you know I I know at least following the Twitter from Infocom this year, any booth that had any kind of game associated with it or, or, you know, got a lot of attention. So it certainly is good for PR in that sense, regardless of, you know, if it actually makes people buy their product or not, I can't, I can't attest to that. But, but I think, especially since there's a lot of international travelers that come to these trade shows too, that may, it may be their first time that that's kind of the audience that they're aiming for. Well, and it goes down to metrics too. I mean, we, we measure everything. And for a manufacturer to decide on their budget, how big or how little they go and how much staff they put into it and everything else, those metrics have to come in to some form of number. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, and so that is a qualitative or quantitative part of the process. And what John's talking about is, is the qualitative part, which is I want to be treated like, you know, a valued industry partner. If somebody's new, um, you know, I want them to be able to get to the point and do it well you got to be careful because at the same point, you never know who you're going to alienate or who you're going to bring in. And so it, that comes down to personalities, too. And, and John is not one to um, withhold any opinion. No. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> On this. And, and so, I mean, I get it. As somebody who's been going to trade shows for, you know, span of over two decades, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you kind of get a feel. And, and you'd like to be treated as, you know, like you said, I, what did he call one? The, the old friend or the new friend, yeah. right? You, know? mm -hmm. you want that personal attention and you want to feel valued for taking your time to be out there. And, and that's fine. But you're also still dealing with people. 
and people have different personality traits, people have different personality styles, and they may have a good day or a bad day. I mean, mm-hmm. you, everybody, by the third day of the show, you're beat, you know? Yes. So, yeah, sometimes it is easier to default into X, Y, or Z. And, and so, I mean, I think the manufacturers, for the most part, do the best they can. And, and it is an investment, and it, and it is an effort for them to be at these trade shows. And for us, you know, as, as the <coughs> clients, you know, or partners, um, you know, we've got a little bit easier because we're putting them all in the fish barrel and we get to go around and see all of them. They're basically having to hang out their sign and say, please, you know, amidst everybody else who does, you know, seven other people who do what I do, please come look at me. Right. Uh, and so they're, the, you know, without meaning to, it's almost an adversarial situation in the first place because they're the ones that are, it's one of the only times where they get to be held hostage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Tension. Um, where normally it's the other way around. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it, it made sense, and it's tough. I, I, I think that, you know, although I've never been on the manufacturer side, I have so many friends in the manufacturing side that I, I have, I, I definitely have some sympathy for them for what they have to go through. So I think I tend to cut them a little bit more slack than, than what this um, little piece was about. Okay. We absolutely. I mean, I, I talked with a couple of buddy, well, my buddy Michael, who now works for Sennheiser. It was, it was interesting seeing Infocom uh, through his eyes this year. This was his first year working for a manufacturer. Last year he worked for an integrator, and it was just it was just neat to see that that side of it. Um, not that I, you know I've, I've talked with other guys that I've I know before, but but Michael and I know each other on a different level, and, and just just seeing it from his side is was very interesting. They uh, they put up with a lot, <laughs> just put it that yeah. way. So yeah, uh, Emily, is there one or two things that maybe you you uh, wish that 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 um, uh, exhibitors would do or, or absolutely would not do? Um, well, I did agree with a couple of things of the, of the would not do. I mean, when you walk into a booth and they just ask you to scan your badge, you know, you, you know that they're obviously not there to have a meaningful conversation with you. You're just a number in, in that regard. Um, you know, I, I do agree with Rich as far as the new products. I mean, it's so often that even this year at Infocom, I saw products that were introduced last year or even two years ago that are still not shipping. Um, so, you know, I understand the first to market kind of race that's out there um, where people want to introduce new products at Infocom. But if you have no plans on shipping that product for at least 24 months, you know, don't even tell me about it. You can, you can tell me about it, but don't show me a cardboard box, you know, and, mm-hmm. and say, we don't have a ship date for it yet. Um, so I, I do agree with that sentiment. So I think I agree with, with Rich's, you know, the manufacturers do the best they can. There's no way to please everyone. Everyone has a different personality and a different reason for being at the trade show. So, I think they do the best that they can and, and try to, you know, reach a broader audience that way. No, they definitely do. And that, and that's, I think some of it also is the fact that, um, you know, let's take you know, a couple of, um, yeah, companies that I use an awful lot of, <laughs> let's put it that way. You mm-hmm. know, they're not trying to get me, you know, they've already got me uh, for the most part. Uh, I'm going to go by their booth. I'm going to have a, a, a meeting with them. Anyhow, I, something we're all set up and, and you know, just to kind of see, um, their new products. They're trying to get the person who they don't have yet, mm-hmm. and so that's yeah. kind of the whole the whole thing. I mean, that one thing that one thing that was interesting about Infocom, and I actually wrote this uh, in one of my blog posts about it. This year, it was an awful lot of getting business done, and I heard that from more than one manufacturer who said, you know, they were actually they were they were finishing deals, finalizing deals, com- you know, completing deals on the show floor. That were rather, you know, really, really significant deals. I mean, more than, you know, there was a couple of, of deals with national chained um, restaurants and, and food uh, companies that 
when they told me, I was like, holy cow, that's really cool. You know, it's, it's, you know they were they were actually doing business on the show floor. And yeah. that's something I, had, I hadn't heard in years past, at least not for the last two or three years, just because of the way the economy was. And that, that in and of itself made me very positive. This was even before I heard the number uh, about, about this year's show. So, Yeah, I think that's a good point because I think, you know, with everyone so focused on travel expenses and stuff nowadays, I think a lot of people did plan to have business meetings in Orlando when everyone's there for three days. You have a captive audience, you know, so it's the perfect time to get business done. Yeah. Um, and, and to your earlier point, too, you know, I have a lot of manufacturers that I talk to regularly that I don't even see at Infocom. I may stop by and say hello, but they, they said, all right, I'll, I'll give you a call after Infocom. Yeah. You know, we all know what's going to happen, and I'll tell you about the new products that we release, but there's no reason for us to meet when, you know, they can go out and reach new audiences. They already know they have me, so um, so that's definitely something that, that we do as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's going to be all robot trade shows. <laughs> you know what? If the guy from Beam has his way, it will be. <laughs> mm-hmm. All standing in the lunch line. This guy. Holograms. I want holograms. Oh, man. This guy's. I mean, this, this holy cow. Talk about smart. He's actually a neighbor of yours, uh, Rich. Uh, he's, he's there in Silicon Valley. And this guy is. And this is like. This guy's like out of the world smart and somebody made the comment to him said you know uh, beam is is uh, suitable technologies and they've got a, it, it i i call it a personal video conferencing system and what it is it's a i don't know if you saw this or not emily it's um it, it's a pair of wheels and then a stem and then on top is a is a monitor and then you control this thing remotely and you can drive around with it and it can go you can do wi-fi or also can work off of a 4g card and it's it's wicked cool. It's really it's it's very intuitive to run. Uh, and they had a booth at, at Infocom, and somebody made the comment to him said, "You know what? You should do. You know, sh- you should bring like you know ten or, or fifty <coughs> of these, uh, fifty of these next year at, at you know in, in Vegas." And he starts doing the math. He's like, 50? We could bring a thousand. You know, <laughs> and he's like, "We could we could do this." And th-. I mean, this guy is, like I said, wicked smart, and yeah, he a really cool guy. So. Uh, one last Infocom story. Everybody had a huddle room. <laughs> if I heard the word huddle one more time, I was going to scream. Barco, uh, AMX, Christie, Crestron, they all had some sort of meeting room solution. And I don't know. I put on the show notes to you guys asking the question, was this, uh, first of all, it's like everybody shared the same memo between themselves. Um, I mean, Barco has had their click share for a while, but, um, you know, there was some other stuff going on. I don't know if this is a product looking for a solution or if this was an actual problem that these guys all happened to to come up with a solution in the same year. Um, Emily, we'll start with you on on this. Is this, you know, was this an actual problem that I'm just not aware of because I I live in education and, you know, we have collaborative spaces, but nothing, nothing to this scale. I don't know if I define it as a problem, but I, I mean, I do think there was an opportunity because I think this this whole BYOD, bring your own device, you know, kind of marketing spiel that's been going around, I think is definitely taken over and, and be able to display uh, Windows PC, Apple PC, Android, you know, whatever the device may be, I think, you know, is definitely what this is tr- aiming to to solve. You know, I think like we talked about earlier, there's not one solution that has everything. You know, I, I saw Barco's ClickShare last year, and they reintroduced it this year with new Android and Apple devices. Um, 
And the, the Crestron Air Media device, you know, was kind of following along the same lines of wireless presentation. You can connect 32 devices. Um, I, I really liked the Enzo product, actually, the, the AMX. I like the idea of the QR code mm-hmm. scheduling. I thought that was a pretty, pretty intuitive um, device. You know, they use Dropbox, basically, as a file sharing um, server, and then you use a QR code when you walk into a room in order to authenticate. So I did like that. And, you know, obviously we work in the government world, so having a secure dual authentication device was, was pretty impressive <laughs> That's to me. That's so. yes. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a problem, but I, I do think that it's where the industry is going, is that no matter what device, you know, you want to bring into a conference room and be able to connect it easily. Um, I, I think, you know, if it's that difficult to do, then we're not designing our systems or installing our systems correctly. So maybe that's the problem that, it, that it's aiming to solve, is that if it's so hard to walk into a room and connect a laptop using a cable, then, you know, there's something something greater wrong well yes there, yeah I, I can see that what's interesting though is is that a lot of times those complicated systems uses those same people yeah <laughs> so, true exactly sorry <laughs> uh rich uh is this i'll ask the same the question the same way is was this a problem was this was it was or like emily said probably better than i it was more of an opportunity uh i i it's an opportunity for, for I think, what, what this technology that we're seeing is a stopgap technology. Um, and I think we had talked about I think we talked about it offline a little bit. I'm, I'm a huge proponent, obviously, being in the Silicon Valley over the fact that, you know, software is eating the world. And mm-hmm. you know, it's been quoted by some very, very smart people. And we're seeing that these are hardware manufacturers who are coming out with kind of hybrid solutions mm-hmm. in between, focusing on the BYOD, the bring your own device market, which is huge. And it's not even BYOD, it's, it, it, let's call it for what it is, it's mobile. Everybody's yeah. moving to mobile. And by this move to mobile and with these established manufacturers, I kind of view it as them trying to establish a beachhead <laughs> before some software-based or IT-based company or somebody out of our industry comes in and eats their lunch. That's what I really see here, is that they're saying we need to come up with some solutions for people to still stick with us before somebody looks at our market and goes, you know, a couple of codecs and some algorithms, we could do this pretty easy. Um, and when we were dealing in an analog world, you know, what, what Emily was just talking about, you know, coming up and plugging a laptop in and, and you know, it should be simple. It should be. And in, 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 now that we're getting to this point that the technology is catching up, 15, 20 years ago when we were still in an analog world, we had a whole lot of issues to go with. Then when we moved over to digital, we were still dealing with legacy systems and how do you bring you know, new technology into legacy backbones and how do you upgrade and you know, your budgets. And again, it's, it's, you're dealing with budgets at this point. You know, they're looking at it saying, okay, how can we leverage the money that's left over for our budget? Because nobody is necessarily going to say, well... You know, we're going to go ahead and allow for that $45,000 switcher in here anymore, you know, that does VGA and HDMI and all of these other things. Um, we want for, you know, in a $15,000 touch panel. Um, they're coming in and saying, hey, look, we got four people who've got iPads, one's got an Android device. Our net investment in all of that that they have that our company provided is maybe $2,000. And we want them to be able to get in and quickly uh collaborate and so that's where these products are coming from i'm looking at is it's 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 an answer to the commoditization that's going on around them and still trying to keep everybody in the fold 
before, like I said, somebody else comes in with a really smart software solution. Because that will come. Somebody is going to come with this. They're going to look at this market <coughs> and say, there are easier ways to do this. Um, and at that point, then, uh, you know, the, hopefully these manufacturers are going to say, look, we're still in here and we're still vested enough, we're still relevant, that we can maintain our core audience. And so I think they all kind of got it. I think they all did share the same memo. I think they're all reading the technology news and going, we got to do something about this now. Okay, so let me ask you this question, and, and I'm not being silly here. I, I was talking to, I thought it was a clear one a couple of years ago, and the guy that, that, and I apologize, I don't remember the gentleman's name, uh, but the, the person at, at the booth, he and I were talking, and we were talking about just you know where he, he sees technology going. He made the comment to me that it's, it's still stuck in my head, where he sees the, the, where the future's going, where all of this is going to be, the best way I have to put this is a software-based switcher. So you have transmitters and you have receivers, and it's all kind of managed on the network, kind of, you know, a la AVB-ish, HD-based-T-ish. But these big honking switchers that you were putting in 20 years ago, Rich, that that infrastructure is now in the network. And there aren't any, you know, three-rack unit high switchers. It's all done by network. How far away are we, are we from that? Look how fast cloud storage came on. Yeah. You know, uh, people, you know, there were, remember the old server farms and, you know, storage solutions and having to maintain internally, you know, your, your own network storage and, and hardware solutions from the, constantly, you know, I, I, I've kind of gone on and on about how I feel that I, I truly feel that our industry is about 20 years behind the rest of the tech sector. Um, a lot of what we're seeing now, uh, you know, one of the analogies that I always use is that, you know, you remember Sun Microsystems and uh, Silicon Graphics and Cray Microcomputer. And, you know, they were huge hardware investments to perform specific tasks. And, and you know, you, you pay, place the premium on it. And then they were replaced by a software world. Mm -hmm. That's only taken 15 years. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and with technology that we're moving at such a pace in the rest of the tech sector, which, you know, admittedly, the companies are focusing on it because they have a larger audience that they can sell to. The reason why our industry is behind is because we're a smaller market. We, mm -hmm. we just are. We're, we're a decimal point correction in, in terms of the greater tech industry. Mm -hmm. So the manufacturers that are looking at this are saying, okay, there's some trickle-down theory um, that occurs from it. And... What, what you're saying is, actually, you know, where, where can I see it? I would say that within the next, at the outside, 36 months, um, there's going to be a significant um, product that will allow for it. And it may be even faster. Um, because, again, if, if, if somebody takes a look at the market and sees that there's some penetration that they can do from a code standpoint, as opposed to having to retool and manufacture and tool up, that speeds things up. And that's what does speed everything up is you're not dealing with physical product at that point. You're not having to tool up your factory and, and, and put everything through. If you can use kind of the same base silicon that everybody else is using, and then you're coming in and you're working on, on tinkering under the hood. Um, so for me, I, I would say I would, I would not be surprised if within 36 months, if not sooner, um, that it gets a very big jump into that just because of the way that mobile's moving. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that's it, is the market is forcing it. It's not that the manufacturers are having these moments of clarity. They're, they're desperately trying to catch up to where the rest 
of the of the greater industry is going. You know, I mean, and, and yeah. take a look at the enterprise. You know, the enterprise is moving to mobile. They are doing it begrudgingly, but they know they have to. And they're coming up with solutions that are software-based solutions in order to be able to scale. And I think once they, somebody figures out how to scale properly, then you're just going to see this huge growth curve spike comes through. And I think these manufacturers are hoping that they can still be in on it. Yeah, I, and I would think one of, one of the reasons why I would agree with you that we are kind of 20 years behind is is that the, the AV industry is a very proprietary industry. I mean, the standards exist in the IT world, you know, for a reason, so that it, for interoperability. And I think in the AV industry, we've been such a proprietary world for so long, it's a really tough pill to swallow for a lot of these manufacturers. I mean, you mentioned ABB, HD-based-T. Um, ABB was ratified two years ago, and it still can't be deployed today um, because... You know, Cisco hasn't accepted ABB really as a deployable standard at the at the routing level. You know, just not the layer two, layer three level. So, I think that I think if it, we can have the AV industry embrace this, you know, standards based, non proprietary world, there's no reason why we couldn't be there today. I think that's really what the holdup is. You know, I would I hope 36 months out we're there. Um, I, I kind of guess I view it as a glass half empty. Um, as opposed to glass half full approach, you know, I feel like there's no reason why we shouldn't be there today. But I feel like we're kind of holding holding ourselves back by trying to maintain this proprietary stream along with accepting the standards that are out there. No, that's well, a, let, go ahead. Let, I'm sorry. Let's also consider the elephant in the room in that if you have engineers, software engineers who are coming fresh out of school, and they go to a job fair and their choice is to work for Google. Amazon, mm -hmm. Apple, or XYZ AV company, who do you think that is going to draw the top tier talent in the first place? Mm -hmm. So I think part of it too that we don't necessarily talk about is are these manufacturers able to draw the talent in to be able to get from point A to point B? Because again, if you think about it, they've all been hardware-based company. That's what they know. That's where they came from. And you know, that's the question that I always have is how much are they investing in their software brain trust in the first mm -hmm. place for it? You know, does do these companies, how many engineers do they have on this product? Do they have one? Do they have 10? Do they have three? Do they have 40? And, and that's the one thing that we, we sometimes forget is that you still need people on the back end. Although it's a great mm -hmm. product, it has to start with an idea. And somebody has to be able to materialize that idea from a technical standpoint. And so... You know, th that's why I was saying is that it, it, it potentially may be an outside market that forces our hand because mm -hmm. they, they will likely have the engineering firepower to be able to put on this. You know, a small team from a large player is probably larger than potentially the software teams of most of these companies combined. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it may come from an acquisition, you know, similar to what we were talking about earlier is, you know, it may have to be an acquisition because the hardware manufacturers just don't have the talent in order to think that way. So they need to acquire a company that's already doing it successfully. Or they get acquired by a company that's already doing it successfully. Well, true, true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the flip side, too. Not pointing any fingers, but, you know, mm -hmm. starts with C and ends with S. Right, right, so. right. <laughs> I still think they're going to buy a control company. That's just, you know, somewhere. Yeah. I, I said control four for the longest time, but now that they're doing an IPO, that you know, I'm probably wrong on that one. But somebody, I swear, so yeah. they're going to buy somebody. Uh, all right, guys, one last uh, story before I let you get out of here. Um, since it's 4th of July, 
we're going to talk about swimming pools. <laughs> this is just an interesting story to me. And just because I know Mr. Pedroza, he's probably done, you know, a dozen of these. Um, it, it comes to us from Electronic House. Automation ideas for your swimming pool. So, Rich, how many of these have you, you probably did at least three or four of these that are actually in this article? One was in Boca Raton, Florida. Um, I cannot, so. I cannot lay claim to any of these actual ones that are being these actual. Okay, but, but you've done but, something like it. Oh yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, it's definitely a uh, it, ten years ago. Um, there just weren't any manufacturers. There was only one manufacturer who actually spoke outside of their own system. And we were actually hired to write the interface for it. And then we handed it out to everybody when they were done. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a natural progression, you know, with the, with the, when it first started out, it was like a really cool, tweaky thing. Hey, look, I can turn on my, my hot tub. And it's gotten to the point now, which again, going back to mobile, um, it has gotten to be a very practical use with some of these options to be able to monitor something very simply with an add-on device to the pool controllers. Every, every pool manufacturer now has some form of interface device, whether it's a third-party um, interface box or it's built in right to the unit that you can go ahead and just go to a little app on your phone or on your, on your uh, tablet to be able to perform some of the rudimentary controls. So it's, it's, it's cool. I'm excited about it um, because it's, it's something that is entering people's minds now as they can do it simply, they can do it affordably, and it becomes just another Trojan horse, kind of a gateway into expanding out the rest of the system. Um, we had an example I just, I, I mean, I literally just did one when I was uh, in the Hamptons, um, where we just thought it was the coolest thing. A client showed us and said, hey, look, I can turn my misters on and off from here. I said, hey, got an idea for you. What if you didn't have to go to three different apps to do this and we just put a button on there for you? And went, you can do that? Absolutely. <laughs> Value added within something that was already there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, from the entertainment side, you know, I mean, I, it, where I live, you know, it's not hot enough that I need a pool. Um, so, uh, but for people who have it, um, I mean, it, again, it's, it's, it's expensive enough to maintain a pool. So anything that you can do that will help you either control it or automate it or get you some form of savings, even just from a monitoring standpoint, it's awesome. And, uh. And there's some cool stuff. I mean, I've done some, you know, some with water slides and grottos and, you know, spit, the little spitting fountains, kind of like all the Bellagio. Oh, um, they're, they're cool. They're there. I mean, it's absolutely cool. But there was a premium that you paid for, it, you know, because basically everybody was rolling their own and and, you know, making very specific interfaces for it. Now you can literally pick up, you know, an attachment to your existing pool system without having to change everything out. Throw it on a little, you know, ninety-nine cent iPad app, and from wherever you are, be able to turn on your spa or change the temperature and and uh, have a go at it. So I, I I'm excited because again, it's it's it stopped being something from lifestyles of the rich and famous. We we don't need what's his name, Robin Leach, yes, <laughs> introducing uh, your automated pool anymore. It's literally now just go to the App Store or the Google Play Store, and and there it is, and you too can have this. And uh, I like that it's becoming something for. General, as opposed to somebody who's lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills. Yeah, and and that part of this is is also kind of the the way that the industry has developed between on both sides from the from the pool side as well as from the control side, where both of them 
are kind of talking in IP based language um, because you've got an app, you're you're able to talk you know over IP. Um, both of them can talk now, and so now they can talk to each other. I will say, dive-in theaters are the coolest thing ever. Jeez. I've done one in my career, and it was smoking cool. <laughs> you are just a rock star, dude. All right. Um, Emily, you deal with government, so they probably, well, I shouldn't say they probably don't. They probably do have these, and they, you know, we all, we all paid for them. <laughs> right, right. It's just not controlled from your iPad, unfortunately. It's not but... secure enough. So yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a wired connection. So, all right, guys, that's going to wrap us up for this uh, this week, this Fourth of July uh, uh, special. By the way, thank you so much to the men and women who uh, who serve this country and and uh, and give of, of themselves every day. And so so thank you very much. Have a, a safe. Uh, I hope you have a, a safe Fourth uh, of July, uh, Emily Hay. I hope you enjoyed your first time here. She is from Pershing Technology, Vice President of Systems Engineering Services. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Uh, where can people find you or Pershing or, or both? Uh, PershingTech.com is our website. We are an independent consultant. And like Tim alluded to, we, we do government uh, healthcare commercial work. So we are a consulting firm that does uh, engineering design services as well as integration services. Very good. And also with us is Mr. Rich Fergoza, fergozadesign.com, one of the uh, Cedia tweeps uh, for the upcoming Cedia uh, trade show uh, in uh, Denver this year. Uh, where can people find you and, and, and where can people uh, register for Cedia, sir? Well, the important part first, please support me as one of the returning Cedia tweeps. Um, you can register. Registration is open for Cedia Expo 13 now. You can actually go to the webpage. It's expo.cedia.net. Um, and if you register using code CT2, Charlie Tango 2, that's a vote for Uncle Richie. So, CT2. Uh, CT2, vote for Uncle Richie and uh, help me make sure that I'm sitting at the top of the heap at the end of this whole thing. Um, and that was a great show. We're looking forward to having you there. We're hoping to have the CD Tweeps be your social media ambassadors. And hopefully the CD Blog Squad will be back as well once uh, we get some uh, other things moving along. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at rfragosa. You can find my website for all your digital concierge needs um, at fragosadesign.com. And you can find me elsewhere on the interwebs on Facebook, Google+, LinkedIn, dot, dot, dot. CEPro and, you know. CEPro.com. Yes. That would do. Got to get a plug-in for my boss. Yes, absolutely. Tell Mr. Jacobson I said, hey. Uh, all right, my name is Tim Albright. Um, if you would like to follow me on Twitter, it is TD, Tim David Albright, uh, A-L-B-R-I-G-H-T. But more importantly, uh, for me and everybody here at the old uh, Aviation, go to the website, uh, avianation.tv. Avianation.tv, you'll find this podcast as well as a host of others. Uh, just put up a brand new DIY talking about home forging, as in making your own, you know, jewelry. It's, it's actually kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, but yeah, check that out. Avianation.tv. You can find us on LinkedIn and um, Twitter and Facebook and the Google Pluses and all that. Yeah, but just go by the website if you would. Avianation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. That's all the time we have for AV Week. <laughs>